Hello and welcome to the Meta Hour podcast with Sharon Salzberg. I'm Lily Cushman. I produce this podcast and we're returning today with another episode of our mental health series, episode 228. And for this episode, Sharon's speaking with someone that you have probably unknowingly heard her reference more than anyone else (laughs) that I can think of, and that is Dr. Richie Davidson. Richie is someone who is one of the foremost researchers in the realm of meditation, compassion, and so we're thrilled to have him be part of our mental health series. I'll tell you a little more about Richie's background. He is involved in the University of Wisconsin-Madison in a variety of ways. He's a professor of psychology and psychiatry. He's also the director of the Center for Healthy Minds there. He received his PhD from Harvard in psychology, psychopathology, psychophysiology, and a minor in behavioral neurology and neuroanatomy. He's gone on to found an organization called the Healthy Minds Innovations which is all about translating science into the tools for cultivating well-being. Richie's best known probably for his groundbreaking work studying emotion and the brain. He's someone who's very close to His Holiness the Dalai Lama, and he's served on the Global Council of Mental Health for some time. And his research focuses a lot on emotion, emotional life, and what's happening on the neural front behind those emotions. And he speaks a lot more about his research here, but we're pretty excited to go to the source, I want to say, of a lot of the research that Sharon will quite often reference in her work and here on the podcast. So you're in for a treat. Before we get to today's episode... I do want to mention that Sharon has an offering that has just come out through the Tricycle Online Learning Hub, and that's a new course that's centered around her book, Real Life. It's a six-week course that is a very deep dive into the teachings of that book and this process of moving from contraction to expansion, from isolation to connection. And if you visit our website, SharonSalzberg.com, you can register. I also want to mention that there are scholarships available for this offering. And the majority of the course is pre-recorded, but there are two live Q&A sessions with Sharon. So join us if you'd like to. I also want to mention that Richie has an upcoming course that we have a special coupon for you, our listeners, to access at... 20% discount. It's called The Science of Flourishing Well-Being Skills for Daily Life. And if you visit the show notes for today, you can find a link to register. That's a course that doesn't have an exact start date. Uh, It is really centered around mental health and skills and tools to bolster your mental well-being and emotional intelligence. And we're excited to offer you the discount so that you can join. So let's dive into today's episode, Sharon Salzberg and Richie Davidson. 
Hello, Richie. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Sharon. It's great to be here and to be with you. And it's great to be with you. Although now I feel like I should call you Richard because it feels like going back to our youth together to call you Richie. <laughs> Please don't call me Richard. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Dr. Davidson, how are you? Where are you recording from? Uh, I'm in our center, the Center for Healthy Minds at uh-huh. in Madison. Uh, and yeah. Happy to be home for a change. Uh, uh-huh. I've been back on the road a lot. Interesting. I haven't been anywhere personally, so <laughs> I, I can listen to your tales. It'd be like, uh, it'd be so interesting for me. Like, wow, on the road. <laughs> it's really great to have you here on the podcast. I talk about your work all the time, of course, and reference it in this and other contexts. And it's great to to have you like going to the source. So. Right now, we've been trying to emphasize different aspects of mental health um, all year, really, on the podcast uh, as a way to go somewhat deeper into the tools of mental well-being and uh, clearly also in response to the tremendous amount of suffering that seems to be present. I'm really thrilled to have you a part of that. And for those who uh, don't know you as Richie or don't know your path, don't know your story. Can you tell us how you came into this world, this sphere, and what drew you to meditation and spiritual practice? Sure. Uh, happy to. Um, so uh, I, uh, at the very beginning of uh, graduate school, really, it started when I was an undergraduate, uh, having um, a taste of meditation and a glimpse that uh, this was a path that uh, was important to me. And I saw the mind as uh, um, really the most important thing for me to be dedicating my life to and to studying because it seemed like uh, uh, so much of what is important in the world in some way or another is related to our mind. And if our mind is calm and um, stable, and um, uh, if we are uh, approaching things with uh, a kind of joy and equanimity, things would be different. Uh, and, And so it was really from that orientation that I was attracted to a meditation and a spiritual path. And then uh, in graduate school, I was in graduate school at Harvard in the um, 1970s. And um, uh, before, you know, this was before the internet. And so um, I knew there was a guy who was also a graduate student at Harvard named Dan Goleman. uh, And he had published these really obscure papers uh, in the Journal of Transpersonal Psychology uh, and I think I was probably one of about six people on the planet that actually <laughs> read super carefully at that time. Uh, and um, so I knew Dan existed, and I, but I didn't know what he looked like. You know, I had never saw a picture of him. And I went to my first class uh, in graduate school, and this guy sat down next to me, and I turned to him and I said, you must be Dan Goldman. And it's not because of any prescient psychic ability I may have. It's because he looked like he just came back from India. <laughs> uh, and uh, anyone could have picked him out from a crowd. Um, 
So uh, uh, that um, really began what is really a very precious, deep, deep friendship and um, um, really uh, having a colleague who is a Dharma brother is um, uh, so special. Uh, and the fact that our lives are still connected after all this time, I've known Dan for more than 45 years. Um, and uh, uh, that's what really um, uh, started all of this. And uh, Dan introduced me to Ramdas, and uh, um, John Kabat-Zinn was also just finishing his graduate work in Cambridge at the time. And it was before he started mindfulness-based stress reduction, and he was trying to figure out what he was going to do with his life. And the three of us were hanging around Cambridge together. Um, and uh, uh, the, both of them were, and Ramdas were important sources of an alternative education for me. And uh, uh, that really kindled my um, interest in meditation and um, and then uh, after my second year of graduate school in 1974, I went to India for the first time uh, and as part of that um, did um, some retreats with Goenka. Uh, and, you know, that was really the beginning of my introduction to, to the path. That's fabulous. I don't know if uh, you know this, but Dan, Danny, as we call him, actually brought me to my very first meditation retreat in January of 1971, where he inspired me. He's the center of the universe, actually. <laughs> okay, I've been wanting know. somebody to write a story of that time. I think it's such a fascinating time. I mean, the Vietnam War was going on when I went to India, and, uh, you know, the influence of the East and so many people going there or or thinking about it and uh, it's such an interesting time. Maybe it's the story of Dan Goldman. So I had gone to India with a very small group of people um, from the State University of New York at Buffalo, and I went with a year's independent study uh, credit, basically, to study meditation. And um, the university approved that project, and off I went. And I didn't really know where to go, and it was a whole series of things that didn't work. And, you know, I'd find a great reportedly great meditation teacher, Tibetan, and the translator would be out of town. or You know, so many things didn't work. And I finally ended up at this uh, international yoga conference, healthy yoga conference in New Delhi. And it was a, a miserable, <laughs> in general, it was a miserable experience where the low point was when these yogis and swamis were pushing and shoving against each other to be the first to grab the mic and speak. And uh, I thought it's all over. I might as well go back to Buffalo. And and uh, Danny, for some reason, I don't know why, was giving a talk at that conference. And, uh, you know, he was a graduate student and he was studying psychology and meditation. And he'd been invited somehow to give a talk. So he gave a talk and he mentioned that he was on his way to this town called Bodh Gaya where he was going to do this intensive 10-day meditation retreat with S.N. Goenka, who had just left Burma. And it was like an immersion course, and, and you didn't have to like become a Buddhist or, or join anything or reject anything. It was really about the power of your own mind, and I thought, that's it. And was it? So, I don't yeah. know, something like 50 of us followed Danny to a guy, including Mirabai Bush and all kinds of people. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Yeah. And I certainly um, went to this 
first Goenka course um, because of Danny. So, uh, uh, yeah, that's um, some important shared history. And it was yeah. during that that first 10-day retreat, <laughs> talking about the sort of social and political times, you know, I was sitting um, in the meditation hall and someone hands me a note and it says Nixon resigns. Oh, um, interesting. So that was right during the retreat. Yeah. So uh, your work is centering around mental health in many ways, you know. Uh, you serve on the Global Council on Mental Health, and um, I, I find the term mental health a little strange because we, we say mental health when we actually mean the opposite. You know, we mean distress and suffering, but that's, that's maybe hard to say right out front, you know. So we call it all mental health. Um, let's call it well-being, which is another way of looking at it, which maybe takes it beyond the absence of, of an ailment to something even more positive. What do you think? Yeah, I think, you know, you're, you're really hitting on a number of super important issues, uh, which I'm really quite passionate about. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, when I was a graduate student and learning this field, I was taught to look at people and to try to figure out what's wrong with them. Uh, and now I look at people and try to figure out what's right with them. And it's a very different orientation. And the orientation that we have now is an orientation that is premised on the um, – the idea that human being, every human being shares the same basic capacity to flourish uh, mm. and to uh, um, uh, have uh, the skills of well-being, that this is part of our innate repertoire. And um, uh, if we focus on these strengths uh, and learn to nurture and cultivate them, uh, we're really nurturing and cultivating uh, qualities that, that are the basic nature of our mind and heart. Um, this, is, this is really at our core. And there's a lot of growing scientific evidence for this. And one way to capture this is to talk about um, what I call innate goodness. And what we mean by innate goodness is that people come into the world with an innate predisposition to um, prefer warm-hearted, kind, compassionate interactions compared to interactions that are selfish uh, or aggressive. Uh, and the data for that, the hard-nosed data are overwhelming. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, it may sound surprising to some listeners, but um, this is really the case. And so when we do practices that, of the sort that you teach, Sharon, um, we're not generating these um, qualities de novo, but rather we are strengthening qualities that every human being comes into the world with. It's really part of our basic nature. And, um, and that's a very different uh, way to think about it. And I think it's, it's really important. And in terms of the, quote, mental health crisis and, um, uh, and, and, uh, mental health challenges, I think that if we can um, equip people with the skills 
to cultivate well-being, we can, uh, in a kind of preventative and more upstream way, uh, decrease the likelihood that um, uh, even in the face of significant adversity, that people will decompensate into more severe kinds of pathology. Um, it's not to say that that's going to happen for everyone across the board. Of course it won't. But I think we can do a much better job of um, um, focusing upstream and really uh, changing the trajectory for many, many people. And there's so many things that just came up in my mind. Let's see if I can do them in some kind of sequence. Uh, first of all, I think you hit upon one of the controversies I always confronted, and I've heard you speak about it as well, in talking about the cultivation or the development of compassion and that uh, people don't like that idea that you can often, you know, that you can train in compassion, that it's something you can strengthen. And I don't know if it's that we tend to think of it as a gift and you either have it or you don't, or we just in general are not into a growth mindset about certain things. And, and uh, it, people feel it's cold, it's, it's, it's mechanistic, something like that. But I think it's really... Uh, it makes sense, you know, because we know that awareness can be trained and attention can be trained because meditation is one perfect example of a direct training and attention. And so many of these qualities are kind of like emergent properties of how we pay attention. You know, if you don't listen to people, it's very unlikely you're going to feel some sense of connection, right? And very unlikely there will be compassion. But if you learn to be present, you learn to be focused, you learn to actually listen and not hold on to some previous view of somebody, then there's every possibility of something like compassion to arise. So, um, you know, the, there's something about needing to believe or trust, at least there's a, a possibility of training or developing these skills that seems very important. Yeah, I think that's um, you're, you're touching on a really important theme here, uh, and uh, I think you use the uh, the term mindset, which I think is applicable and really um, relevant to this. Uh, it's important that we have uh, a kind of growth mindset, a mindset that uh, holds that change is possible. And um, one of the things I love reminding people of is that. Uh, in the 1960s, when um, when we were at one of our um, several real low points in race relations in the United States, and Martin Luther King gave his famous speech in 1963, the title was not I Have a Nightmare. Um, and having a dream about a different way of being is really part of the solution. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and I think that's really important here as well. Even in the face of all the terrible news that we get every day, mm -hmm. um, uh, um, being able to focus on uh, a different way of being uh, is so essential in helping to promote that change. Yeah, and it's it's really what hope is, isn't it? Not in an attachment sense, but um, a vision. You know, it's it's some sense of a path or a possibility that seems so important. Yes. Of course. Otherwise exactly. we're just stuck, you know. <laughs> I remember when uh, one of my other teachers, Manindra, said to me once, um, the Buddha's enlightenment solved the Buddha's problem. Now you solve yours. 
And some people might hear that as being kind of dismissive, but I felt wildly encouraged by that. I thought, oh, he thinks I can solve my problem. Yeah. yeah he thinks I can really do great. it. And, and that's the whole point is that we have a vision of possibility that's not distant. You know, it's, it's really right here. Yeah, I love that. So when you say, so I was really captured when you said something about going upstream. So I know you've uh, worked with uh, kids, with children and evolving uh, curricula and things like that. And so I'm just wondering, you know, given um, the effects of trauma, the effects of uh, poverty, of inequality and, and the things that many children grow up in the midst of, or just, you know, difficult family relations or whatever. Um, is there a way of actually studying the longer term effects of, say, being introduced to some of these skills when you're in kindergarten or first grade or something like that? Yeah, those are wonderful questions and, and um, so much to say about, um, about this. Uh, first, uh, uh, often when those kind of systemic inequalities and um, systemic uh, challenges are uh, considered like poverty and um, abuse and trauma, um, uh, uh, I often get the question, well, you know, how can you um, think about uh, cultivating individual well-being when the system has to change? And... Um, and I think that for me, the answer is not either or, but it's both. Um, uh, the system does have to change. And in order to change the system, um, we need to change too. And if for nothing else, you know, social activists need to have the vitality mm -hmm. uh, and the resilience to keep going and not to get burned out. Uh, and so uh, I think these skills are so important, particularly for those of us who are really trying to do what we can to, quote, change the system. Um, uh, and uh, so, so that's one piece. The other piece to say is that, yes, it's true that poverty gets under the skin, and it affects the brain in demonstrable ways. Uh, trauma gets under the skin and affects the brain and the body in demonstrable ways. That's all um, really powerful and really true. And uh, we know that there is uh, such a thing as the intergenerational transmission of trauma. Uh, and that happens through both cultural um, mechanisms, as well as through biological mechanisms. We know that uh, epigenetics, uh, where the expression of our genes can be affected by trauma, can actually be passed down at least a couple of generations, those epigenetic changes. And um, if this sounds Lamarckian, it is uh, in certain ways Lamarckian, although the mechanisms are now much better understood and, um, uh, you know, this is not crackpot science. This is mainstream molecular biology um, that shows that, um, that uh, uh, there is this 
um, real phenomenon at multiple levels of this intergenerational transmission. Uh, now, it's also the case that the very same mechanisms that are responsible for encoding trauma and encoding suffering can be harnessed for awakening. Uh, and I have been talking about the intergenerational transmission of awakening and the intergenerational transmission of resilience that are operating through these same mechanisms. And, um, you know, when you think about, um, uh, about tukus in the Tibetan tradition, uh, um, these are individuals who are putatively reincarnations of yogis, great beings who have some level of realization. Uh, and um, if you think about the uh, childhoods of these people, um, uh, there are multiple mechanisms that are likely operating both social and cultural as well as biological mechanisms that uh, I think are promoting the intergenerational transmission of qualities that are positive. Um, and so uh, uh, this is, uh, I think, a really important issue and one of the things, you know, just to sort of put it very concretely that we are now exploring, which um, uh, I think is really super cool uh, and based on all of this, is that if pregnant women uh, are meditating, uh, we expect that uh, the um, impact of that will not simply be um, beneficial for themselves, but it will also be beneficial for the fetus uh, that is um, developing in the womb. And uh, this is something that can actually be tested. Uh, and so um, in some new work that some folks in our center are doing, we're beginning to do this. And, um, uh, and we think that this can actually, at least in part, occur uh, intrauterine. Um, uh, and uh, um, we can evaluate babies as soon as they're born. Um, we can get measures uh, from the umbilical cord blood um, that uh, actually give us an epigenetic snapshot of the developing fetus to see if um, these kinds of well-being practices during pregnancy actually make a difference. And this would be um, direct evidence for the intergenerational transmission of resilience, awakening, whatever we want to call it. Um, so, uh, you know, I think that it's, um, it's a very vibrant area now. And um, uh, the bad news uh, about the intergenerational transmission of trauma also has this other side, which we think can be harnessed for the good. Well, it's, you really talking about going upstream. It's like yeah. you're into the womb, which is about as, you know, fundamental as you can get. That's really fantastic. Um, that, that is really uh, just so interesting and talking about resilience in, in those ways. And um, I'm wondering if you could describe for us the four constituents of well-being that you talk about. Certainly. Um, and I should just say that um, these four constituents are ones that we came up with that are jointly informed by uh, a deep knowledge of the contemplative traditions, and particularly the Buddhist contemplative tradition, 
uh, as well as modern science. And what we did in coming up with this framework is to really try to find the sweet spot um, where these um, two great um, traditions converge and particularly to identify core constituents of well-being that exhibit plasticity, where we know that they can be trained, they can be influenced by um, certain kinds of practice uh, uh, and show this kind of plasticity. Uh, so, uh, and I, th and this framework was jointly developed by myself and uh, Cortland Dahl, who is um, uh, a really unusual person that is in our center, uh, who has um, deep meditation background, and uh, uh, he's lived in um, in Asia for more than ten years, and uh, has translated many. Um, uh, Tibetan meditation texts from Tibetan into English. Um, uh, and also another scientist from our center, Christy Wilson Mendelhall. Um, so the framework has these four pillars. The first pillar we call awareness. Awareness is where you would put mindfulness. It includes our capacity to regulate our attention, something you're um, speaking about earlier, and it also includes a capacity that scientists call meta-awareness. Um, and meta-awareness is the capacity to know what our minds are doing. And to some listeners, that may sound a little strange. Don't we always know what our minds are doing? But I think even casual inspection will reveal that we don't always know what our minds are doing. And one common experience that um, I often ask about uh, in public talks is um, the experience of reading a book where we might be reading each word on a page and we might be reading one page, a second page. And after a few minutes, we realize we have absolutely no idea what we've just read. Our minds are lost. Um, and the moment we recognize that is a moment of meta-awareness, of awakening. And it turns out that that's a quality that can be trained. Um, you can actually get better at it. And there's just tons of really good scientific research to show that now. With simple um, uh, meditation practices, you can learn the skills of meta-awareness. And we think meta-awareness is really important for all other forms of transformation. Because if you're not aware of what's going on in your mind, then it's much more challenging to, uh, uh, to try to change those processes. So that's awareness. The second pillar we call connection. And connection is about qualities that are important for healthy social relationships. Um, uh, they include qualities like appreciation and gratitude, kindness and compassion. And we also have extended this to include connection, not just to others, but also to our place, uh, to our context, to the land. Uh, and um, ecological awareness is really part of connection uh, in a very important way. The third pillar of well-being we call insight. And insight is a curiosity-driven self-knowledge. Uh, we all have a narrative in our minds about ourselves. And we know that uh, there are people that have a negative narrative. Uh, there are some people that have very negative beliefs of themselves and low expectations. 
And of course, that is a prescription for depression. And what's important for well-being is particularly initially not so much changing the narrative, but it's changing our relationship to this narrative so that we can see the narrative for what it is, uh, which is really a constellation of thoughts. Uh, and finally, the last pillar of well-being is purpose, uh, finding our true north in life uh, and clarifying uh, our values and our sense of direction. And here, it's not so much about finding something potentially more purposeful to do with our lives, but how can we derive meaning and purpose from that which we already do, including the pedestrian activities of daily living? Can washing the dishes be meaningfully connected to our sense of purpose? Can taking out the garbage be connected to our sense of purpose? And of course it could be. Um, it simply requires a little bit of reframing. Uh, and there are simple practices that we can do that can be helpful for that. So those are our four pillars of well-being. I want to pick up with the notion of meta-awareness for a moment, because the question I usually ask people to try to illustrate it is, have you ever like dashed off an email without realizing you were angry or irritated? And only later you look back and went, Ooh, I guess I said that with some hostility. And, you know, in the olden days of email, uh, if you were say on AOL as a platform and uh, you're the recipient of your angry, hostile email was also on AOL and they hadn't read it yet. There was this magic button you could press called unsend. And something in your computer would like reach into theirs and pull it out or something. But life doesn't give us all that many unsend buttons. Even AOL doesn't give it to us anymore. But, you know, there's something about uh, we are rarely, for some of us, in touch with what we're feeling. And we're just guided by these impulses and these maybe very old, strong emotions and old adaptations uh, to life and and so on. So the possibility of simply even just shining awareness is, is tremendous. And the other thing I was thinking of when you were talking about um, the umbilical cord blood and things like that was I was uh, thinking of my understanding of the study that Emory University did in the foster care system of Georgia mm -hmm. uh, yeah. using uh, – kind of loving kindness practice or compassion practice. And, and uh, I was there somewhere midway, you know, it wasn't the completion of the study and they were doing a lot of biological markers for stress hormones and things like that. And I remember people saying, cause they're working with uh, maybe adolescents, you know, who didn't always have the vocabulary for describing their mental state or their emotional state and a kind of self-report, but they were watching those biological markers and all the stress hormones were going down and, and there was, you know, definitely an effect. And uh, so I thought of even those times we don't realize we're getting better, you know, and other people may notice it before we see it ourselves. Yeah, those are really important observations and I completely agree. And, um, it really underscores why meta-awareness is so vital. Um, uh, and I think in the domain of emotions that you describe, it's, um, you know, it's especially important. And it's really true. We, don't, um, we often don't notice 
uh, the angry email, and we don't notice ourselves um, perhaps improving, um, but others do um, before we do. So what would you say to somebody who felt they were just starting on a journey of working with their mental health or their well-being? Like, where do you begin? Well, what I often use as an analogy is to remind people that when humans first evolved on this planet, none of us were brushing our teeth. And I'm sure every person listening to this podcast brushes their teeth at least a couple of times a day. And um, when we reflect on this, you know, it's kind of remarkable because brushing your teeth is not in our genome. It's something we've all learned to do. We've learned to do it because it's important for our personal physical hygiene. And what we're talking about are simple things we can do for our personal mental hygiene. And uh, the scientific evidence shows that if we spent even as short a time as we spend each day brushing our teeth, nourishing our mind and our heart, this world would really be a different place. Uh, and it really, you know, if you do it for five minutes a day and do it consistently, um, you really see uh, discernible benefit. So, of course, more is better, but even starting for five minutes a day is enough to see change if you do it on a regular basis. That's interesting because sometimes, you know, people say that to me and I feel like I need to caution them that if you're, say, practicing meditation at home, the first five minutes can be the hardest five minutes because you're also thinking, I have to, what's that sound? You know, is that my refrigerator? Is it broken? You know, like, and that it's almost like the discharge of stress or tension, which itself is very helpful. But, uh, you know, you have to gauge it yourself basically out of your own self-knowledge, what's realistic, like what can you actually do? And, you know, not feel discouraged because it's not matching your dreams of, you know, I sat for three and a half minutes and I floated into the air and it was all bliss and light. And to really understand what's happening, which brings us to, you know, not being dismissive of anything we're feeling, even the, the very difficult stuff and uh, really learning a different way of relating to all of it. Uh, which seems most important. Exactly. And if we're aware of it, that's really the practice. Um, and so, uh, you know, Mingyur Rinpoche always says, the road to Lhasa goes up and down. Uh, <laughs> uh, and they're both equally important. Mm -hmm. That uh, also makes me think of how much uh, joy we get and how much inspiration we can get from a teacher, from a community, from not feeling so alone in this endeavor. And partly, partly I think that's a result of the incredible stigma that uh, this society in the U.S. certainly can place on um, every kind of suffering, really. Uh, it's humiliating. It, implies you've lost control, you shouldn't get older, you shouldn't get sick, you shouldn't be afraid, you shouldn't have uh, certainly a, a kind of mental illness or ailment or uh, degree of suffering so that it's difficult to function and, um, and to understand that this is an inheritance, this is like cultural baggage and, and that we're countering that in our very being uh, is not so easy when we feel all alone. 
Yeah, no, I think that's so, so important. And um, uh, yeah, it really underscores the value of Sangha. Uh, and uh, it's very difficult to do this alone. Um, uh, and so uh, uh, I think that, you know, in... Um, when we work with teachers and in other kinds of organizations, one of the things we always do at the outset, um, even if it's uh, a kind of digital intervention, if you will, where we're, um, you know, using an app uh, on a phone, which we've developed the Healthy Minds program uh, to teach this, we we have we work with a group of people that we call ambassadors or champions who can convene real um, um, groups of people within an organization and to help support uh, the, um, the folks who are doing it because uh, that kind of community, as you say, Sharon, is so critical in, in sustaining our motivation uh, to mm -hmm. keep going. I'm so glad you mentioned Miguel Bache. I, I uh, haven't seen him in a while. I might have last seen him in Madison, actually. I'm not really sure. But uh, I have seen, uh, at least online, uh, consistently Sonny Rinpoche, his brother. Um, and it is a tremendous sense of connection to something larger when you have an opportunity to work with a teacher. And for those who don't, um, it's not like all is lost but at all. You know, there is something vital that a community can serve and, uh, as you say, help you with confidence, help you keep going, um, help you have perspective on things. You know, when I did my first meditation retreat in January of 1971, uh, Joseph Goldstein was there as a student. He'd already been there for like three or four years, and he blames Danny for having brought like 50 people. And <laughs> You know, there used to be like four Westerners in Bodhgaya until Danny did his thing and we all showed up. Um, you know, but one of my great memories of him was uh, some interaction I heard, I overheard him having with somebody where he was, he'd been practicing for about four years. I'd been practicing for about four minutes at the time and certainly no more than four days. And uh, he was saying to somebody, oh, you know, I had, a really difficult morning. I couldn't concentrate, but this afternoon will probably be different. And I was horrified. I thought, doesn't he take this stuff seriously? Like, doesn't he realize, you know, the import? But that was the difference of having been through those ups and downs and ups and downs and ups and downs and having some more equanimity about it all compared to me. Yeah, yeah, that's so important. And, you know, on the issue of Teachers, um, one of the things that's kind of remarkable, and I think in in certain ways has been helped by the um, crazy changes we were all forced to make during COVID, mm -hmm. is that there are now really great teachers, including yourself, who are so much more readily available with yeah. online offerings, and um, uh, and and that I think you know is can be really helpful. Um, I must share this, this wild story, this, um, about this, uh, I'll make it brief, but one day I was driving Mingir Rinpoche from Madison to Minneapolis, and we were doing a gig together, um, on a Friday night in Minneapolis, and we had to get to Minneapolis by six o'clock. And I had a new electric car 
that I was driving him. The car had uh, arranged such that we, I knew we wouldn't reach Minneapolis uh, in time. Uh, 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 I mean, with the, with a single charge. And so we needed to stop for a charge. And I explained this to Rinpoche. And it, it was me and Rinpoche and three other monastics in the car. So um, we made a stop. And this is the first time I was ever driving outside of Madison. So, you know, it was all new to me. I charged the car and it all went well. And um, it went faster than I thought. And we had a little snack by the charging station. And then we get in the car and I realized that, um, you know, I sort of was really cutting it close. And while I had enough charge to get to Minneapolis, I had enough charge by about six miles. And I thought that it was really cutting it too close. So I said, Rinpoche, I'm going to stop once more. We'll, we'll be able to get to Minneapolis on time. And we stopped at another place about 100 miles later. And it was at a big box Walmart store, um, one of these huge <laughs> stores in the middle of nowhere. Um, and I was futzing with the car to get the car set up to charge again. And Rinpoche said, well, he's never been in a store like this, so he'll go in while I'm... <laughs> he goes in the store with all the other monastics, and um, and then I got it, the charging started, and he hadn't come out yet, so I went into the store, and there he was. Uh, um, you walk in, and on the left is the optometry department where they're selling <laughs> eyeglasses. And um, it turns out that the guy who runs this department... Um, he Rinpoche walked in and he said, "You're Yonge Mingyo Rinpoche." Oh my goodness! <laughs> recognized him from being online from his videos, and this is a guy in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, in the middle of friggin' nowhere, um, and uh, he had never been to a meditation retreat, uh, and it was just the most remarkable thing. And we all were taking pictures together. And while we were there, he signed up for a retreat. Um, oh, that's fabulous. And it's just, uh, you know, a real testament to how a teacher can be influ influential in these modern times online. No, I, I love it, actually. I mean, I know a lot of people have difficulty uh, feeling that it's the right medium for them. But I, I feel like it makes accessibility so strong. And. Um, for all kinds of people, you know, and doing all kinds of things. And uh, I think it's really important. I thought that story might end a little differently because I thought of Menindra, um, who was a teacher we, we brought to the state several times. And one time, uh, Joseph Goldstein and I were with him in D.C. and we took him to the Air and Space Museum. And he was there for over six and a half hours. And at one point I fell asleep on a couch and I opened my eyes and there was Joseph on the opposite couch you know, fast asleep. It's like you had to see everything. You had to see every single thing and maybe more than once. And so when you said mall, I thought, uh-oh. You know? I love it. And such has been our lives. Um, so I'm wondering if you could say something about uh, what is actually a surprisingly new term of contemplative neuroscience. Yeah. So contemplative neuroscience, as we think of it, is the use of neuroscientific concepts and methods to study the impact of contemplative practices. So that's one way to think about it. In that sense, you can 
think about it as the neuroscientific study of meditation. I would like to think about it a little bit more deeply and in the ways in which Francisco Varela, the great Chilean neurobiologist who was one of the co-founders of the Mind and Life Institute, the way he talked about it, he used the term neurophenomenology. And one of the insights that we get from the contemplative traditions is that um, we can use contemplative practice to help us become more accurate observers of our own mind, so to speak. And as we become more accurate observers of our own mind, it then begins to be more possible to study the relationship between our experience and the brain. Because a person who has trained her or his mind, it's like, you know, putting the mind under a microscope, if you will, uh, having a really clear lens through which to look at it. We might be able to uncover insights about the mind and the brain with practitioners who have spent time training their mind that are very different and perhaps more insightful than correlations between the mind and the brain that we might observe among people who have not trained their mind, where we might be getting a very noisy picture, if you will, when we ask them to introspect about their own mind. And so this is the project of neurophenomenology, which is um, very much lies at the heart of contemplative neuroscience. Uh, and, you know, is still a promissory note in many ways, but I think the groundwork is in place to really build on what's already been done and, and have this continue. Well, the sub-theme, you know, of the idea of training is, as you said, you know, don't be afraid to start with what seem like baby steps. It's not inconsequential. It's really meaningful. Uh, be realistic about what you feel you can do and then do it and find out what would support you in doing it, which may be a group. It may be uh, inspired reading. It could be an online uh, offering. So I'm curious uh, also, Richie, about the upcoming offering you have called The Science of Flourishing, Well-Being Skills for Daily Life. Uh, yeah, this is um, an outcome of uh, our uh, framework uh, that we talked about earlier with the four key pillars mm -hmm. of well-being. Uh, and um, Court and I and some others from our center have occasionally been uh, um, teaching this uh, in, a, um, in a kind of workshop format where we're weaving together the science and the practice. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, it's uh, a kind of integrated combination that we really love to do that is at the core of our DNA uh, here at, at our center. Um, and so that's what this, this uh, offering will be. So it's uh, an online workshop, is that right? Yeah, so it's an online workshop. We've delivered it in various places, occasionally in person, um, mm -hmm. and um, we're offering it online. Uh, uh, and, you know, it's it's really a bit of an experiment to see if uh, it's beneficial. Um, uh, and, uh, uh, you know, it's not something that we're going to be doing a lot of, I don't think, but it's um, really just kind of, 
um, dipping our toes in the water and seeing if uh, there, there is interest and if it's beneficial. I think it's beautiful. Do you, I mean, you may not know the details of this, but, um, you know, I would like to sign up for it, but I don't know. My schedule is always so crazy that I was listening to people later. Do you know uh, if one registers for it, do you get short-term access to it, lifetime access to it? I you may believe, not know. Yeah, no, I think, well, I'm pretty sure that you would get um, – Lifetime access to it, whatever lifetime means, yeah, but, yeah. Uh, enduring access to it, yes. Right. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what I need. It's even like when I, you know, do a, a course with Sonny Ruberche, I always think, oh, or not a course, but, you know, when he does uh, daily questions and answers for a week or something like that online. And I think, oh, good, you know, and then I look at my calendar and I think, oh, bad. <laughs> you know, like, I'm going to be know. listening to that at midnight, but I do. Believe me, I know that challenge. Yep. Okay, so not only am I going to register for this course, but I'm happy to say that uh, all of you who are listening out there, there's going to be a coupon code we can offer you so you can save 20% off the course when you use the coupon code META20, so M-E-T-T-A-20, when you register. It's great. Um you know, and it's interesting too to to see the movement from books to other forms of expression to try to be together with people. So, was Altered Traits your most recent book? It it was, and um, working on a new one now with Court, uh, who we I developed this framework with uh, uh, on flourishing. It will um, be a, a kind of more detailed. Um, uh, depiction of these four pillars of well-being, tell the story of how we came up with this and present uh, the latest science around it. Um, so, yeah, we're super excited about it and um, uh, we're in the early stages, but uh, hopefully it'll be done uh, by this time next year. That's great. I actually watch Court occasionally online uh, teach as well. So I have, I have, uh, I never get up from this chair, basically, you know, so it's like, uh, I'm either working or I'm, I'm absorbing and occasionally having fun that I do too, but, uh, there's so much and it's, I'm so glad you're working on the book as well because, um, we still read them and I think we just need so many sources out there because people do feel very alone sometimes in, in what they're endeavoring to do and, we go through ups and downs, and we kind of need that that sense of support, I think, very strongly. So I hate to be running out of time, but we're running out of time. So um, I would love it if you could lead us in some kind of practice just to bring our conversation to a close. Uh, I'm happy to. And as I said <laughs> offline, uh, I feel like leading a practice in front of Sharon Salzberg is like <laughs> – um, uh, Matthew Ricard talking about Buddhism in front of the Dalai Lama. Oh, God. Uh, so, um, but nevertheless, I will be happy to do this. So uh, uh, if listeners would find a posture that's comfortable for them, uh, not too tight and not too loose, 
And let's begin by simply bringing awareness into our bodies with our eyes open or closed, whichever is more comfortable. And let's notice a sense of grounding if we can find it or whatever sensations might be present. And as we begin to settle our body, let's expand our aperture of awareness to include sounds that may be present, any visual impressions, any sensations that arise through touch, and even tastes and smells. allowing all of our sense doors to be completely open. And simply noticing whatever may be present. And with this as a backdrop, let's bring into our heart and our mind a person that's close to us. Or it could even be a pet that's close to us. It could be a family member, a close friend, a colleague. And let's bring this being into our mind and our heart. And let's notice something positive about this person or this being. And as we reflect on this being, let's see if we can allow this very natural sense of appreciation to arise. Appreciation for something they may have done that was beneficial and appreciating who they are.
And let's see if we can extend this sense of appreciation to all of those who might be listening to this podcast. All of us who might be interested in promoting well-being and flourishing and relieving suffering. And as we end this short period of practice, let's dedicate whatever merit, whatever insights, whatever benefit we may have gleaned from our short time together. And let's See if we can infuse our everyday lives with this greater sense of awareness and appreciation. So thank you all so much. And uh, Sharon, uh, I want to especially express my appreciation to you and to all you have done in your life to help promote increased flourishing and reducing suffering on this planet. And I feel so deeply grateful and appreciative of who you are and all you're doing and continue to do. And may this work be of benefit to more and more people. Thank oh, you. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for being here. And uh, I'm uh, determined to see you <laughs> at some point. Uh, it would be just lovely. Um, and even just being together in this way has been great. So thank you so much. Thank you all for listening. Hey folks, thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Richie's work, you can visit his website, richardjdavidson.com. That's R-I-C-H-A-R-D-J-D-A-V-I-D-S-O-N.com. And also I encourage you to check out, he has a number of books, Altered Traits is the most recent one, which was co-authored with Daniel Goleman, who has also been a guest here on the podcast recently. And for all things Sharon, online courses, free guided meditations, and her virtual teaching schedule, you can visit SharonSalzberg.com. This has been the Meta Hour podcast from the Be Here Now Network. May you be safe, may you be happy, may you be healthy and may you live with ease.